1 John chapter 1, as Tom instructed, hope you're doing well today, it's glad, or good to see you, and glad to be in the house of the Lord. I want to bring your attention to 1 John chapter 1, and I want to share with you a message under this title, It All Begins with Jesus. It all begins with Jesus. Now, we have a number of things that we're going to cover today, so out of interest of the number of things we're going to cover, I'm going to forego any sort of introduction and get into three simple points that I want to share with you today under the title of, It All Begins with Jesus. So, if you're ready, say amen. First thing I would like to share with you this morning is this, the Apostles' Testimony. We're going to look at the Apostles' Testimony, the Apostles' Conviction, and the Apostles' purpose. But our first point this month, this morning under this heading is the apostle's testimony. If you'll look again at the word of God as I read aloud, it says, that which was from when? The beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. and We've seen it testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have what? Fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father." And with his son, Jesus Christ, verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Church, my first point for you this morning is simply this, the apostles' testimony. We're going to find this point in verses 1 and 2. I want to share with you this under the first point that I have for you this morning, the first point of the first message of the first chapter of 1 John, a lot of firsts there, it's wrapped in this statement. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. I know that you know your Bible. I've said this many times, and I will continue to say it. We have a very intelligent church. I know you're familiar with your Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you read 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, you might have an inkling that you've heard something similar to this elsewhere. And if you are thinking this, you would be right. In John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, jumping forward a little bit chronologically, a few years later, we're reading 1 John, and John once again begins a book that he is authoring with these words, that which was from the beginning. You know why? Because it all starts with Jesus. It all starts with Jesus. I, I, I clapped the lights on. You can't make this stuff up. John starts his letter just as he starts his gospel, telling his recipients that, listen, it all starts 
with Jesus. The second thing that I would like you to notice is the empirical nature of John's testimony. The empirical nature of John's testimony. Look at it again, if you would, please, with your eyes. He says, that which was from the beginning, now follow me here, which we have heard, right? Which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Church, John is saying something here, and we need to listen. We need to get it. He's saying that Jesus, the word, wasn't simply someone who appeared to be human, but someone who actually was human. This brings us to a topic that we call in Christianity or Christian doctrine, the incarnation. The incarnation is a word used to describe Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, taking on human form. The word incarnation is a compound word, incarne, literally meaning in the flesh. So when we say that Jesus became a man, and we refer to that event as the incarnation, we're talking about Jesus taking on flesh. In fact, in John's gospel, chapter one, verse 14, John says it like this, not yet. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the problem for some in the, air, in the earlier days as is the problem still for some people today, is the evil of sin and corruption in the universe. If there's evil and sin affecting our bodies and affecting the universe, and if Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is holy and good and righteous, then they argue he couldn't possibly have put on flesh in a real sense. So the incarnation couldn't possibly have happened. Did you follow that reasoning? It's what we would call platonic. Have you heard of the Greek philosopher Plato? Plato had a philosophy that boiled down in many ways to this. Material is bad, but spirit is good. Material is bad, but spirit is good. And this philosophy had so infiltrated the church that the teachers were borrowing from it and spreading the teaching in Christian doctrine, in Christian communities, in Christian churches. As a result, people were starting to doubt the validity of the incarnation. They were saying, in so many words, that Jesus appeared to have come in human form but he would have never actually come in human form because material is bad. Folks, let me take a moment and say this. Be careful what ideas you borrow from the world. You say that again. Be careful what ideas you borrow from the world. As it was then, so it is now. The church has a tendency to open its doors to false ideology that is not friendly to the Bible for the sake of agreement, concession. But the truth of the matter is what we think, what we read, and what we teach really matters. 
in the 1689 Baptist Confession. It says these words in chapter 8, section 2. It's going to come up on the screen. In this way it came about that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the divine and the human, were inseparably joined together in one person without the conversion of the one nature into the other and without the mixing, as it were, of one nature with the other. In other words, without confusion. Thus, the Son of God, Jesus, is now both true God and true man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man. You see, Jesus wasn't part God and part man. Follow me here. You, you, you might be asking yourself, why is he dumping all this theology on us? This is why. Jesus wasn't part God and part man. He wasn't a man who became God. And he wasn't a God who sort of forfeited his divinity to become a sort of Superman like the mythological Hercules. No, Jesus, say amen if you're listening. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus was fully man and fully God. As is described in the confession, without the two mixing, he had two distinct persons and yet he was one Christ. This is what's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. On the topic of the hypostatic union, in his book, Biblical Doctrine, John MacArthur writes this, the union of Jesus' divine and human natures in one person, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. So what happens when there are people who whether inside the church or outside of the church, start teaching something different about the biblical doctrine of the incarnation, which teaches us that Jesus was fully human and yet also fully divine as the second person of the Trinity. Or people that say Jesus was fully divine, but he couldn't possibly have been human the way that we think it to be. What happens when we start to see false teaching like this creeping into the church? Well, that leads to our second point this morning. Talked about the incarnation, a hypostatic union, humanity and divinity in the one person of Jesus. And our second point is this, the apostles' conviction. First, we got the apostles' testimony. We saw it. We heard it. We touched it. Now we're coming to the conviction. Verses three and four, if you'll look at it with, it with me, it says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to whom? To you. Why is it only women not answering me? Are there no men in my church? Come on, man. Thank you, Bruce. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to whom? Yes. So that you too may have fellowship with, with us. As we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Those are the two points that I want to look at right now under the topic of the apostles' conviction. With this point, I want you to note the plurality 
that's found in the verses one, one through four of chapter one. In these four short verses, John says, we, our, or us, 13 times. Why is this? Simply because the doctrine that establishes the foundation of the church isn't a man-made idea, as they are sometimes thought to be. John says, we, us, and our, because he's referring to the group of apostles who have put down Christian teaching according to the authority of Christ that was given to them. Let me illustrate this using two other apostles. Paul, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says this, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please the God who tests our hearts. That's Paul's testimony about the authority given to him. Now listen to Peter's testimony about the authority given to him. Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Did you get this? Did you hear what's being said here? We got it in John, 1 John chapter 1. He's saying, we saw, we heard, we touched. We're telling you this so that you will have fellowship with us on the foundation of our teaching and then we jump to another book, book, 1 Thessalonians, and Paul says, we have not taught you out of impurity. We have taught you under the authority of God who's testing our hearts. And then we go to Peter, and Peter says, man, we were eyewitnesses. We're not making this stuff up. It's not myths. It's not cunnily devised fables. We are teaching you about things that we saw ourselves. So even when we go through the New Testament and compare what John is saying here with other texts, we get the exact same message, namely that they were writing under the commandment and authority granted to them by Christ about things that they themselves were eyewitnesses to. A couple of things then worth noting here in 1 John about the apostles' convictions. First, their conviction is that the incarnation happened. That's the first thing that we get from the convictions that we see here in 1 John chapter 1. He says, we can't miss this point. We saw him. We touched him. We heard him. The incarnation was real. We saw him in the flesh, right? That's the first thing. We've already talked about that, so no point in belaboring it. The second thing that we need to see is that their conviction is that the incarnation is a non-negotiable doctrine. 
the, thank you, Hollis. Uh, no, I appreciate that. I'm not, okay. It just got me so excited. I, okay. The incarnation is a non-negotiable doctrine. The point of their argument isn't moral relativism. They aren't saying, this is what we believe about Jesus, but whatever you feel is right about Jesus is okay. Wrong! You're entitled to feel whatever you want about Jesus, but you are also entitled to hear from the biblical revelation that your feelings are wrong. You can do whatever it is you want to do. But the apostolic teaching instructs us that the incarnation happened and that if you want to have fellowship with the apostles, you've got to believe it. The entire point of this introduction is to establish the truth of the incarnation because it isn't a negotiable point to Christianity. In fact, as our title suggests, it all begins with Jesus, amen? And, and John is saying, we saw him. Fellowship with the apostles, as I mentioned, is contingent upon agreement with the apostles. Let me say that again. You need to write this down. Fellowship with the apostles is contingent upon agreement with the apostles. I say this on a fairly regular basis, but we have a lot of people running around within Christianity, so-called, giving themselves titles and abilities and so forth. It doesn't matter what somebody says about themselves. Even the apostles said, we're not making this stuff up. This is what we received from the Lord. Church, we have to come to grips with this fact. We've reached a time in history when orthodoxy is in dire need. Sure, it has always been an important need. But I think today, more than ever, our doctrine needs to be firm and uncompromising. The world will always aim at twisting the faith that we hold dear its teachings, and its principles, and we see it on a daily basis. Let me give you a few examples. Did God create, or are we the happy accident of evolution? Are men and women made in the image of God with purposes and roles to fulfill, or is sex one thing while gender is another construct, something built upon culture, something that reflects the mind, something flexible and pliable? Is marriage a matrix in which the love and grace of God is shared with the purpose of raising children in the covenantal love of God reserved for men and women? Or is marriage nothing more than a construct that can be broken at will? Irreconcilable differences. Is sexuality a gift from God to be enjoyed in that matrix of marriage we referred to, which inevitably results in children who are to be viewed as an incredible blessing? Or is pregnancy the imposition of a child that can be eradicated and remedied by abortion? Is education something 
that should be sanctified by the church and the word of God? Or is education something that you just get regardless of whether or not that education pulls you farther from the Lord and brings you closer to the gates of hell? It's very quiet because I think you understand what I'm saying. You better get both both of your feet in the kingdom and stop walking the line. John is saying to have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus Christ, you have to have fellowship with the apostles. If you have disagreement with the apostles, you do not have fellowship with any. That is biblical Christianity. You and I have not been granted permission to create a sort of makeshift doctrinal statement. We come to the scriptures and we pull from the scriptures what they are teaching us and we humbly submit to those teachings. Every other point submits to the word of God in our life. That's what it means when we talk about the apostles' conviction. But thirdly and finally, we see not only the testimony and the conviction of the apostles, we, are, we also see the apostles' purpose. The apostles' purpose. This is found in chapter 1, verse 4. If you'll look at it again with me, it says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's our last point this morning, the apostles' purpose. Listen, purpose is important. Amen? Without purpose, we're spinning wheels and wasting resources. Without purpose, we can't define our goals or achieve them properly. And so it is here with John. When we read the letter of 1 John, he's writing with a purpose. He's not writing and saying, I can't tell you how good it was to have lunch the other day at Panera. The weather's been really nice here in Asia Minor. How are things in your part of the world? He's not just writing stuff. He's writing with a purpose. He's writing with a goal. He's writing with something to be achieved. He finishes this wonderful opening paragraph with these words. We are writing these things so that... Our joy may be complete so that our joy may be complete. In what way could their joy be made complete by writing to these believers? Because that is what he's saying, isn't it? John is saying, we're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Well, the easiest way I know how to illustrate the point that John is making here is that of a parental relationship. As a parent, there are few things that bring you joy and satisfaction in your life like that of knowing your children are okay like that of knowing your children are making good decisions. Now, I can illustrate that illustration by flipping the coin and saying there's nothing as heavy and as burdensome and as grievous as knowing your children are not making the decisions you wish that they would make. So John is saying, We're writing these things to you 
if I may ad lib here a little bit, we're writing these things to you because we believe that when you submit to the apostolic teaching, your life will be so incredible and such a blessing to the Lord, that's going to turn around and bless us. Mom, Dad, listen to what it's saying. Raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. It will be a blessing for you. Teach your children in the way that they should go, and in the end, they won't depart from it. We have to appreciate the fact that the investments that we make turn around and come back to us. What kind of investment are you making in your family? What kind of investment are you making in the people that God has put you in authority over? Their joy would be made complete because there isn't any joy in knowing that your people aren't walking in the truth, aren't committed to the biblical apostolic doctrine, aren't living God-honoring lives. So John says in another place, 3 John, verse 4. In 3 John, verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children, this, this is him referring to his church, the churches that he has influence over. I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. That's John as an elder, as a church leader, writing to his people and saying, nothing makes me happier than to know you're walking in the truth. One commentator writes this, the author recognizes that his own joy in Christ cannot be complete if fellow believers for whom he feels some responsibility are in danger of departing from the truth by becoming involved in another fellowship, one that he will soon prove to be bogus. If we can see anything from this purpose statement, if we can see anything from this introductory preface by John for his first epistle, I think it is this, we should never play down the importance of the relationships between God's leaders and God's people. We should never play down the influence or importance of the relationship between God's people and God's leaders. Jesus promised joy to us when we walked with him. Now John is promising a mutual joy if we're settled in the doctrines of grace and glory. To close, ladies and gentlemen, it all begins with Jesus. Amen? It all begins with Jesus. It all begins with the incarnation. Next week, our title is going to be, Why Did God Become a Man? And we're going to talk about the implications of the incarnation. But suffice it to say, this morning, that biblically speaking, we are not given an option to believe whether or not God became a man. Are we settled on the issue of Jesus, the one who came in the flesh, and are we settled 
with the message of the apostles. If we are, then we should see some things. Amen? You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the apostles. If we hold to the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles as it is found in the Bible, we should see some things. We should see fellowship on the Lord's day. We should see worship on the Lord's day. We should see the reading of the word of God in people's lives. We should see the spread of the gospel and evangelism. We should see the loving of our neighbor. We should see prayer and fasting and the disciplines of grace. If we hold to the apostolic teaching, these are some things that we should see in the life of our church, many of which we already do. But let's continue to encourage each other as the apostle does, realizing that your joy will never be complete and your fellowship will never be healthy if you are living outside of the apostles' teaching.